I'm thrilled to see governments opening their minds to a model of, of open streets that looks more like streets to trails and is more focused on active transportation rather than the block party style of open streets, which is wonderful in a normal period, but is not super appropriate in an area when we're trying to discourage congregation. Hi, everyone. This is John Zimmerman, founder of the Active Towns Initiative and your grateful host here on the Active Towns podcast, conversations about creating a culture of activity in our communities. It's great to have you along for the ride. Before we get started with this episode, I just wanted to say welcome and thank you for tuning in, whether it's your first time or you are a returning listener. I also want to express my sincere appreciation to those of you who have recently made a tax-deductible donation to Active Towns or have signed up to be a monthly contributor on Facebook or Patreon. I simply cannot produce this content without your generous financial support. If you are in a position to pitch in, and really any amount helps, please click on the donate button on our website or on our Facebook page. I'll also have all the appropriate links available in the show notes to this episode. Okay. With that bit of necessary business out of the way, let's get rolling with episode 15, featuring Kia Wilson, senior editor with Streets Blog, a nonprofit media organization founded in 2006 that produces daily content that connects people to information about how to reduce dependence on cars and improve conditions for walking, biking, and transit. So without further delay, here's my conversation with Kia. It is such a pleasure to have you on the Active Towns podcast. How are you? I'm doing about as good as I can be under the global pandemic circumstances. Now, um, I was I've been joking a lot that how are you has become a very loaded question. And I feel like I am probably among the most fortunate people in the world right now. I am uh, was in a work from home job beforehand. I am safe. I am housed. I am healthy. I am spending a lot of time with my pets and I'm, I'm doing good. How are you doing, John? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. So for our listeners, why don't you go ahead and fill us in as to where you're actually uh, talking to us from? Um, well, I am talking to you from my very cold office here in St. Louis, Missouri. And um, for those who don't know me, I'm the senior editor at Streets Blog USA. So I am reporting nationally about act issues of transportation, specifically biking, walking, transit, and their opposites um, around the country and how those things impact our way of life. St. Louis is a unique situation because we are, if you aren't familiar with St. Louis, we are a blue city in a red state. We have some of the most significant public health challenges in the Midwest, in my opinion, because of our specific political makeup. Um, the COVID-19 impacts look pretty small on paper, but from my friends who are working in healthcare, they're pretty serious. Um, so we as individuals have been trying to do a lot to protect ourselves and my family, me and my friends and my neighborhood and my community are all taking this really, really seriously and trying to show up for one another and support each other in all kinds of ways right now. We wish we had a lot more testing access and government support and all those kind of good things. But I feel very fortunate to, since long, long before this crisis, have chosen a life that's lived at a neighborhood scale to live in a way that treads as lightly upon the earth as I can. And all those skills are really coming to bear well during this really unprecedented time. 
Yeah. You know, we're now at a stage where we're having to wear face coverings. What's sort of happening on the ground there for you? We are also under advisement to wear face coverings, but again, it's it's a challenging question in an urban context like St. Louis in a lot of ways because we are a city that was built for a million people and we have a population of a little under 350,000 right now. So what we have is space. What we have is, for lack of a better word, sprawl. Um, we have the seventh largest road network in America and I think we're 48th for funding or something like that. Um, so we have a lot of roads in disrepair, but what that means is that we also have a lot of space to spread out from one another, even though we have to reckon with cars pretty much everywhere we go. I live um, about three blocks from a highway because everyone lives about three blocks from a highway in downtown St. Louis. We are definitely wearing masks, but that was honestly something I did pretty often beforehand because of car pollution. I had some habits already that are sadly slash fortunately serving me pretty well. Um, yeah, it's, it's a complicated picture, but I would say that the on the neighborhood scale, some really beautiful things are happening. I've got some stupendous neighbors who are engaging in their own sort of small forms of tactical urbanism, whether or not they know that word or not. Um, I'm sure your listeners are familiar with what tactical urbanism is, but um, for those who might not be, it's when you as an individual citizen um, or even as a city leader who just wants to humble yourself a little bit, take some steps to build quick temporary reversible projects to slow down cars, make the streetscape more engaging and basically bring life back to human scale. So we have a lot of very inventive sidewalk chalk art happening right now. We've got a lot of uh, bump outs being made out of hay bales. <laughs> I ordered a bunch of spray chalk on the internet and it just came today and I'm very excited. I'm starting my collection of traffic cones that I've always said I wanted <laughs> and all that kind of thing. Uh, lots of getting beers on my porch with my friends who are on the other side of my postage stamp like lot yard. <laughs> and so we don't block the sidewalk. So we're, we're finding ways to keep our spirits up, slow down car traffic and make sure that people have ways to exercise and get out. Fantastic. Yes. And for our listeners who are just uh, discovering the Active Towns podcast, we did do an interview uh, a couple of episodes ago. I want to think that it's uh, episode number 12 with uh, Mike Leiden, who wrote the book on tactical urbanism. So be sure to go back and check out that episode. It's, it's well worth it. I wanted to sort of tee this up because you, just like with the work that I do, we, we spend a lot of time with our head in things nationally and looking at things and and sharing content. And you're, of course, writing about that. I scanned back on the, the last month or so of articles that you have published, and it's pretty much been COVID-19. From your perspective, what has been the most surprising thing that has emerged? That's a great question. I think the things today that are making me sad <laughs> are that we are seeing a little bit of a rise in demand for used cars, which is, it's uneven state to state that is a little bit more on the helpful side. Um, but certainly I was surprised, though certainly not 
you know, I understood with the, the swiftness with which our transit networks have lost their funding, lost their ridership. We have deeply fare dependent transit in this country, which is not the norm worldwide. And a lot of workers who depend on transit for their daily commutes are thinking about, well, how do I get into a car right now, rather than how do I get into a greener form of solo transportation that will protect me from COVID-19, like a bicycle. And I can't blame anyone for that because I live in one of the most car dependent major cities in America. There are roads where I, as a very confident and active cyclist, don't feel comfortable riding my bike, don't feel comfortable walking for transportation. But it has made me sad that we have found, even as new car sales are starting to plummet, that uh, we are seeing more people take to the private automobile, even though the amount of driving, of course, is declining precipitously, I think the rate of car ownership might be going up. There are some early signs about that. What's making me feel positive, though, is just how many people are now talking about things that I've been yelling about for my entire time as a active streets advocate, right? Open streets is now kind of a household word that I used to have to explain to every single person <laughs> who I brought it up with who wasn't already in this world. I am thrilled about the pilot in Oakland right now where they have opened up 74 miles of streets to active transportation and closed it to all but resident traffic. They're calling it a slow streets project, but it's it's really an open streets project by most conventional sens- senses of the word. I'm thrilled to see governments opening their minds to a model of, the, of open streets that looks more like streets to trails and is more focused on active transportation rather than the block party style of open streets, which is wonderful in a normal period, but is not super appropriate in an area when we're trying to discourage congregation. So I think we, if there is any hope in the world, are going to leave the COVID-19 pandemic with a bunch of converted and avowed safe streets advocates that would never have existed before. And that's thrilling and very, very, very exciting. It's just how we seize this moment and who among those with the power and resources to accelerate uh, these changes and make them permanent, we can reach. And that's really our obstacle right now. Yeah, I would agree. And it seems as if every episode that I've recorded over the past month or so has included some form of reference to the fact that there's all I have to do is look out the window and it's an open streets event. (laughs) I mean, literally people are strolling and rolling with all different types of uh, mobility devices. And the level of sociability has been taken up a notch. If I'm anywhere near the front yard or, you know, within eyeshot of somebody, people are waving and saying hello. And that's something that we're, I mean, this is, this is cool. This is something that I hope we can hold on to, which is a very, very strange thing to, to say about a devastating pandemic is that, yeah. <laughs> that there, there could be something this incredibly positive. But it, it reminds me of the fact that when something truly traumatic and dramatic happens, like 9-11, people come together and the best of people come come out. It's just ironic that this is something where not only does it draw us together, we also have to stay apart. 
So it, it, yeah. it's interesting. Uh, describe a little bit about your neighborhood because you you you've described it in two very contrasting I know. images. <laughs> An image of the fact that you can get to everything that you pretty much need. And you can be a walk, bike, sort of active mobility person based on where you've chosen to live. But then you've got a massive freeway close yep. by. So <laughs> describe it uh, for, for our listeners. And and then from that description also include uh, what I just talked about in terms of that level of sociability that's out on the streets right now. Without a doubt. Um, so I live in St. Louis, Missouri again. Um, I spent my whole life in the urban Midwest. So I, I guess, yeah, I probably did gloss over the fact that it's a little bit of a, a bipolar situation here in our uh, road use. But it's really what I'm used to. And it's what a lot of American cities have, whether they know it or not. So St. Louis, Missouri is the oldest city west of the Mississippi, you know, um, that at least in terms of westward expansion. I live in a neighborhood called Fox Park, which was what they called the streetcar suburb back in the day. We're immediately adjacent to the core downtown, small multifamily buildings and few single families on postage stamp lots that are uh, gorgeous historic homes built in like 1890, mostly, give or take. And what we overlaid on top of that is a freeway system, right? Um, so we have two highways running through our core downtown in St. Louis, Missouri. One of them passes just north of my house. But if you look out my window, unless you have the windows open and you can hear the freight trucks, um, you would never know it because I live on a boulevard. I live on a street with two lanes of traffic, parking, street parking on either side. Most people don't have a garage. So it's if I walk my dog to the immediate west, I'm going to hit my favorite corner coffee shop. I'm going to hit a neighborhood restaurant that is run by recent immigrants. If I walk to the east, I'm going to hit, you know, what uh, folks who are fans of Strong Towns would know as the Strode, right? I have a giant six lane arterial right there, which opens up into a highway exit. And to get to my library, to get to a full service grocery store, I have to go under and a ramp, a highway ramp, basically. And that's a bummer for sure. I feel very fortunate that I can walk to a grocery store. I do not live in a food desert, but it's not a pleasant walk to a grocery store. And right now I have to go the long way around because they're expediting construction on that off ramp and the bridge due to COVID-19. So it's a challenging sort of mix of things to navigate, but I am always kind of focused on how we can start chipping away at the hegemony of the car in the segments of the road where there is hegemonic car domination, right? So little things like there's a crosswalk signal that's been out for the last three years. I send an email about that thing about once a month. I've been part of several neighborhood groups that have pushed for road diets along that arterial. In the long run, I would love to see that become our bus rapid transit line and then eventually a north-south rail light rail line. And we've made a lot of progress on that over the years. And those projects take 20 years or more <laughs> where I'm from. But I'm optimistic that someday it will happen. It's not an irreversible change to our landscape. We have so much opportunity in a traditional neighborhood like mine to build on what our ancestors did right and to build towards what folks in the future are going to need, which is human connection, ways to recreate and exercise and just transport your body safely through space. And all the bones are there with just a few relatively, in my mind, simple tweaks. 
Yeah. What's your bead on the number of people who are out and about on the streets? Because I'm assuming that sidewalks are a little bit too narrow. And so people are naturally probably trying to distance. Are you seeing an increase in the number of people who are out moving around just to try to get some fresh air? Without a doubt, no doubt at all. It's it's an interesting thing because there are some days where I feel like COVID-19 social distancing has caused us to do what we should have done all the time, which is reclaim the streets with our bodies. And then there are other days where I say, wow, they're really, the cars who were left are driving a lot faster than they used to. There's been some really compelling studies done in major cities. St. Louis has not yet done one about rates of speeding and speed enforcement that paint a picture of basically the traffic calming power of other traffic that we're sorely missing right now on American roads. And we need to replace with traffic calming that doesn't require other cars to return to the road to slow folks down. Every time I go out, you know, we have National Highway Traffic Safety Administration's recommended five foot sidewalks and no more, if that. (laughs) And what that means is that when you see a neighbor, you have to mid-block cross and you have to go into the street. You might have to stand in the median for a little bit if you want to get six foot distance, never mind 10 to 20. I like to jog. And when I jog, I try to give people 25 feet if I can, because we are seeing some emerging research that shows that that might be necessary. And I don't personally feel comfortable jogging in a mask. So I'm trying to make that accommodation. And mid-block crosses are punishing if there is a car in the roadway, right? And especially if there are obscured sight lines from those street parked cars that otherwise I want to be there as a buffer between pedestrians and traffic. What we need now is to expand these sidewalks. What we need now is to open our streets to pedestrians, cyclists, people pushing strollers, kids playing in the street because their playgrounds are shut down as they should be under these very unique circumstances, and basically do everything that we can to make sure that those streets are available to the folks who who need them, not just to get where they're going, but just simply to get out of their heads. We are not under the kind of stringent stay-at-home order here in Missouri that requires people to lock themselves in their home 24 hours a day. We are being encouraged to recreate, and yet we have problems like St. Louis County, which is separate from St. Louis City. They're not related, weirdly enough. The county that immediately abuts the city has closed all of its parks completely as a social distancing measure. And that means that folks from the county are coming into the St. Louis City parks and are beginning to crowd them. We're creating problems with our responses to this that are exacerbating problems we already had, which is street allocation that is inequitable and is dangerous to folks that more now more than ever need to get a little bit of fresh air and just move through their neighborhoods in peace. Yeah, it's interesting to see sort of the difference between the cities that seemed almost poised to deploy some form of quick build or 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 whatever, some sort of strategy and the the cities where We saw more of a tactical urbanism approach of where maybe it wasn't the city that was leading the way, but it was the community members and the advocacy organizations just doing whatever. And then and then contrast that with, you know, virtually no organization, just people taking over the streets. You mentioned something that made me think of an area that does have me a little concerned, and that's the transition period. Talk about that a little bit. 
You know, I wrote an article the other day that looked at China um, because China, of course, was among the first countries worldwide to issue mandatory shutdown orders. We'll never know where this pandemic actually originated from, but they were certainly the first ones to take serious action against it and are thus the first ones to be coming out from underneath it, though you know, they're starting to have resurgences of their own. The early data there is kind of mixed in the mega cities of like Chongqing, which I hope I'm pronouncing right. Please forgive me if I'm not. Shanghai, Beijing, they were seeing a return to rush hour traffic. They described it as a V formation where they had peak traffic in the early uh, or the late months of last year. It dipped down and then went shot straight back up. But then in other segments of um, more rural areas, it's been more of a slow climb. There certainly has not been a return to new car sales. There certainly has not been a V-shaped return to cross-province travel and things like that. Um, People are keeping it pretty local. I wrote this article sort of with the spirit of whatever's happening over there, let's not let that happen here. Um, Let's learn some lessons from this time of staying still. And um, I've been titling a lot of my articles COVID-19 Legacy, trying to think about when COVID-19 is over, what we will still do, what we still commit to doing, not in the name of curbing the spread of disease, but in the name of curbing climate change, in the name of making our cities more livable, walkable, equitable, joyful than they were before because we discovered some things during this period that many of us never would have discovered. I, You and I have chosen to ride bikes for, and walk for transportation for a long time. I know a lot of people who have never really done that before because they didn't have the time. They commuted to a job, they commuted home, they immediately went back out in their car to a restaurant. You know, this is a silly example, but my my father, who I love very dearly, and if he listens to this, sorry, dad, I'm about to put you on blast a little bit, but he went to the grocery store three or four times a week for this in his car. He would drive all the way to the nice grocery store he likes better. My dad lives out in like an exurb in Cleveland, like even closer to a highway than I do. Definitely not a walkable neighborhood, so I don't blame him, but he's starting to see little things like, wow, I, with some basic planning, can cut down on my car travel, and I actually don't love driving. It doesn't make me happy. He used to value the freedom of being able to hop into his car whenever he wanted over the lack of blood pressure, like high blood pressure moments he had behind the wheel, and that's kind of flipped for him a little bit now, and that's something that really encourages me, small things like that. I think that without large-scale policy changes, a lot of this stuff is going to go back to normal, which is why in, you know, Streets Blog is an advocacy journalism outfit. We make no bones about that. Why we are pushing so hard for the kind of quick build things that can be made permanent. So when we talk about adding 60 miles or it was 70 kilometers, 60 miles, not very good at metric system of bike lanes overnight in Bogota, those could be made permanent, be, become a blueprint for a permanent bike lane network there. Very simply, Oakland could turn make their 74 streets of um, miles of slow streets permanent without a whole lot of muss and fuss because these 
pedestrian, bicycle, assistive device improvements are the cheapest, most effective, and most impactful ways to address all kinds of problems in our cities and not just public health. And not even just the particular public health concern we're tackling right now, which is COVID-19. I think that if we can measure in this time, if we can demonstrate these impacts and disassociate the good parts from the uncountable number of tragedies that are going that are tied to this moment, we can do a lot of good. It's a challenging narrative, but we just have to keep going. We have to keep talking and everyone has to speak up for it, you know? Yeah. And being empathetic to the fact that it, this really is a, a, a tragic situation and many, many families are in fact hurting, you know, quite profoundly. So we, we have to couch this when, when we are advocating for, hey, this is an opportunity to improve the the health and well-being of entire populations based on creating a healthier environment for everyone, keeping that in mind. Many bike shops have been deemed as, as essential in various cities uh, around the country. Is that the situation in, in St. Louis as well? Or are bike shops considered essential? They are considered essential. They are the retail elements of them are being asked to go curbside, which no one seems to have a problem with. But mechanic services are widely available, which is great. I know that that, that was a big advocacy fight for Streets Blog affiliates all over the country very early on, especially in New York. They had to stand up and ask for it, but it was it was done and it is good. <laughs> yeah. And I've been hearing a little bit about how valuable that has been perceived because and this ties in another another theme that I want to talk about, and that's the concern over transit. And so you have this situation, and and obviously it's not going to be applicable to every community in every city to because they may not even have transit that you know people have been using but especially for some of these essential workers that are still needing to get to their various work locations there's concern over transit many of the transit systems have gone to holiday schedules and so we're seeing an uptick in the number of people saying well maybe I do need to ride. And and right now the streets have significantly less motor vehicle traffic on it give it a go. What have you been seeing along those lines? An enormous amount of movement. Um, I, I think there's a real argument to be made, especially now, but there always has been, that microtransit is the wave of the future. And by microtransit, I mean bike share. I mean scooters. I mean forms of public transit that one to two people take rather than taking it on a bus. Because in our current road network in a lot of American cities like mine that are so spread out, that are not dense, that it would be really, really hard to comprehensively meet the needs of every single person who needs access to transit without unconscionable expenditures that we just couldn't afford to maintain. It's a good solution. The rollout, however, of scooters and bike share in a lot of communities hasn't been the best, in my opinion, because either... I'm not going to name names, but like the companies on one side, the cities on the other, one or the other hasn't had the same vision. I was, you know, openly pretty critical of live and bird scooters because they, when the COVID-19 outbreak struck, pulled back their fleets a lot and said, you know, the reason why was because they were afraid of transmitting the virus via the handlebars of their scooters. They thought it was a safety issue. And I kind of said like, 
no way, man. <laughs> um, there are ways to meet that challenge. And if you are going to market scooters and bikes as a form of transportation, which they are, and they should be even more extensively, then you need to show up for people when they need it. When transit lines are shutting frequency on frequency, when we are limiting the number of riders per bus, we need to have a way for people to get around besides a high polluting individual vehicle that not everyone can afford in the first place. So I think there's an enormous argument to be made that we're going to witness a moment when transit is going to hopefully be shored up as an essential service rather than as something that is fair dependent and subject to the whims of individual riders that we invest in it in the same way we invest in our car-centric road network is something that has to work and has to be there no matter how many people are using it. And then two, we're also going to see micro transit, small individual solo forms of transportation become even more important. I'm also really encouraged by things like the bike match program that uh, transportation alternatives put together and is now proliferated across the country. It's a way for people who have a spare bike in their basement, in their garage that they're not using, they can't sell it right now, um, to connect it to an essential services worker who needs it um, for free. Specialized Bikes is doing a giveaway right now also for 500 bikes and they're allowing people to buy brand new bikes for healthcare workers, grocery store employees, farmers, you know, essential services and workers of all kinds, sanitation workers who want a way to get to work that isn't in a car. And I would love to see more systemic ways to get people out on bikes. And that is just infrastructure. It is lanes. It is making sure that we have more bike shops in more places uh, so that we can address the needs of specifically people of color when they were surveyed by the, um, I believe it was the League of American Cyclists a few years ago. Cyclists of color said that their number one concern about riding bikes was that if they flatted out somewhere, if their bike broke down, they wouldn't be able to get home. It was that simple, which is not the same as cyclists who are not people of color. They had different, a different set of concerns. So we need to think really big on this. Fortunately, thinking really big on bikes and on walking is far less expensive than thinking big on cars. It just is. And it also can get a lot of Americans back to work. We could spend every dime of the infrastructure dollars that we would have spent on you know, a single bypass in Alabama and put a bus shelter at every place in America. And it would be incredibly inefficient. <laughs> it would create a heck of a lot of jobs. And I think that would be a beautiful thing. That's the kind of inefficiency I want to see in my cities. Please pardon this very brief intermission. I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Kia. Be sure to catch the second half as she dives into how affordable housing and resiliency are connected to active mobility, her passion for writing novels, and how storytelling can help us in our efforts to create safer, more inviting communities. Before we get to that, though, I just wanted to encourage you, if you haven't done so already, to subscribe to the Active Towns podcast on the listening platform of your choice so you won't miss an episode. Also, please share within your network of family, friends, and colleagues as appropriate so I can grow the audience and the movement to promote a culture of activity. Okay, that's all for this break. Let's get back to Kia. 
Going back to the whole concept of the slow streets, and when we look at the fiscal investment of trying to completely transform our transportation network, we just don't have the resources available to overnight turn our built environment, our transportation environment into physically protected bike lanes and and bikeways and things of that nature, at least not at the quote unquote, the perfect ideal using the the, the, the Danes and or the Dutch as, as a model of the physically separated facilities. But one of the, the neat secrets of like, say the Dutch model is that a fairly large part, almost 60 to 70% of their entire network is what are called feetstrots, which are essentially bicycle streets or bicycle boulevards where it's a narrow shared space and in some of them, there are more Woonerf types of shared spaces where there's also pedestrians sharing that space. But when it is a feet strut, when it's mostly a bike priority street, uh, the motor vehicle must be patient and just stay behind. It does not pass the cyclist if, the, if a person riding a bike happens to be in front of them. And at least for a subset of our communities that have a grid network, a gridded network where, you know, you're like, oh, well, this isn't a whole lot of cul-de-sacs. This is not a whole bunch of lollipops or whatever. We have the ability to take an entire network and say, hey, rather than just saying, oh, there's a bike lane over there on that busy corridor that strode, there's an entire network of quiet residential streets that could have a very, very simple tweak here and there, very low cost to make it even more convenient and comfortable for a person riding a bike. And again, my, ne- my, my neighborhood is a great example of that. There is a bike lane on, on Lamar. That's a major strode, a major corridor, but that's not comfortable. Nope. You'd be far <laughs> better off over, you know, two blocks over, one block over on a street that has no infrastructure at all for bicyclists. But what does it have? It has, it's a slow street concept. And so I think that's, and that's an idea that is continuing to catch on Portland has been doing this for 20 years. They've been working on their, you know, their their greenway networks and their their bicycle priority areas. And every once in a while, every few blocks, whatever, you can put in a diverter that actually is permeable for for people riding cycles and or walking, but then, you know, the cars get shunted over to to one of their other streets. So I'm hopeful that this could be something that comes out because I do believe that many of these cities are going to feel the pressure fiscally. There's not going to be a taste to spend a heck of a lot of money on bicycle and pedestrian infrastructure, but if it's something that can be done very efficiently and affordably. I think there's an opportunity there. Yeah, I think you're, you're totally right. And that's an important asterisk um, that I should say, which is when I say bicycle and pedestrian infrastructure, I don't just mean bike lane sidewalks. I mean, fundamentally rethinking the traffic control, which I consider a part of the infrastructure. It's invisible infrastructure. It's soft infrastructure, but it's, it's key and it's crucial. I should give another example in my neighborhood of, you know, I mentioned I live in a streetcar suburb, which is gridded and has medians and cars traveling through it. But the place that I love to walk my 70 pound dog (laughs) the most is not the street with the painted on bike lane because we don't have it. We we have one protected bike lane in all of St. Louis. It's instead a street that 
is through a little kind of, I don't know how to describe it, subdivision style. But it, all it is is a curved street that doesn't follow the you know right angle street grid. It is one way in some weird spots. So it sort of discourages drivers from using it as a cut through for any reason. And you would be hard pressed to see more than three cars on there in a one mile walk around this loop. It's the best place in the world to give my Zozo dog some exercise. So there, it's it's not all about concrete. It's not even all about plastic bollards. Some of it is about traffic signalization. Some of it is about rethinking directionality on streets. Some of it is just about like planting trees to slow people down. And I should also add that a lot of it is about urbanization. Um, What we're really going to need when COVID-19 is over is business to get back to normal and ideally business at a neighborhood scale. And that's sort of my like secret passion in a lot of ways. I'm a transportation advocate, I like to say, but I'm also a housing developer. I own, I use developer in air quotes because I own a four family and a duplex. I live in one of them. I rent out the other five. And I consider that a direct extension and response to my work trying to get people safer ways to get around because I want people to have access to affordable housing near employment centers and grocery stores. It's not very exciting, but it is very important. So yeah, That's my long way of saying that infrastructure means a lot of things to me, for sure. Yeah. And let's double down on that. Let's talk a little bit about that passion that you have for affordable housing. And because this is an issue that I think actually transcends so many different types of cities and so many cities in the sense that it's, it's not just the San Francisco's and the Austin's where access to affordable housing is, you know, it has a different context than access to affordable housing, like say in St. Louis. Yeah. Truer words were never spoken for sure. So for those of you who don't know St. Louis, let me just like give some numbers. This is usually what I like to do to like wig out people who live in New York City, like my colleagues. Um, You can rent a one bedroom in St. Louis that's pretty comfortable, going to be in a historic building, will look pretty nice in South City for $650, $700. You can get nicer ones for $800, $900. We're stuck in like the 1970s in terms of prices in a lot of ways. Not everywhere, not always but the real estate prices are very, very low here. Does that mean that we have no affordable housing crisis? Absolutely not, because there is a quality managed affordable housing crisis. A $500 a month studio sounds great on paper unless you are solely responsible for fixing the toilet um, and you have an absentee landlord that the housing authority is loath to ask anything of because we have two-thirds vacancy in this city. We have thousands and thousands of buildings owned by the Land Reutilization Authority. Even in neighborhoods that on paper look like really hot real estate markets like mine, there is a ton of disinvestment. So it's a very, very challenging, I know people have, when I tell people that I'm a developer or a landlord, I hear, I feel hackles goes up, go up, especially in my millennial age group, because those words carry with them some pretty heavy connotations of profit seeking. I do not profit off of my buildings there. It would be challenging to do that as an affordable landlord in the Midwest. It just is what I do profit off of is eventually the equity in these places. I might be able to sell them, um, but I'm hoping that I'll get to the point in my professional life where I can give them back to the tenants. That's kind of the long, the long range goal eventually. But I, I got into providing homes for people that 
were 70% or less of median income because I wanted people to have a way to get around. And you can't do that with just bike lanes. You can't do that just with traffic engineering. Um, You have to do it by thickening up neighborhoods with services and housing. And, you know, I'm not a commercial developer. That's a whole other kettle of fish. Maybe someday I'll try it. But it wasn't that challenging for me to say, hey, I'm going to put a lot of sweat equity into a falling down building. I'm going to rip out carpet staples for eight hours a weekend. (laughs) I can paint a room. I can do things like that. And I can, fortunately, I'm married to someone who's much better at juggling contractors than I am. And I can make this work. And it's, it's a, it's a job, (laughs) you know, it's like a very labor and money intensive volunteer position. I'll put it that way. Um, but it is something that I get a lot of satisfaction and value from, especially now during COVID-19, because I've built a model of resiliency that allows me to make sure that these people can stay in place in a way that if I had invested my money elsewhere, it wouldn't look like that right now. So One of the things that I wanted to talk with you about is the fact that you also have this other talent. You're a novelist. Tell us about your most recent book that you you published and give us a little hint as to whether we might have a future novel that has a little uh, COVID-19 subplot, you know, worked in. Thanks for asking, John. I appreciate it. This is where I always confuse people a lot because I'm sort of I have a left brain and a right brain, and they're both very active. And my work as a novelist at first seems to have nothing to do with my day job whatsoever. Um, I wrote a horror novel that came out uh, three years ago now called We Eat Our Own. It's got this very aggressive title. It's about the making of a horror movie in the middle of the Amazon rainforest in the late 70s. It is based on true events. And I wrote this book in large part because I wanted to understand why I'm interested in horror films in a lot of ways because it is a a strange live wire in my personality that doesn't fit with the rest but I've always loved horror movies um well loved is a strange word but yeah it is about the production of this film it's about a guy who gets called down to participate in an Italian art film that turns out to be a very bloody graphic gross horror film um, being filmed by an Italian guy who has a real life counterpart named Ruggiero Deodato if you are a goon for this stuff like I am you'll know who that is and the film in real life that it is based on was actually the subject of a pretty extensive legal investigation. The director was brought up on obscenity charges because they thought he made a snuff film. They thought the horror film was so realistic that he had actually killed his actors and they couldn't prove murder, but they thought maybe he had uh, witnessed some, some brutality. He was absolved and you'll have to see what happens in my book. So um, anyway, this, this sounds like it has nothing to do with all this stuff about like traffic engineering I've been talking about with you for the last almost an hour. But for me, I'm very interested in the way that humans contend with violence in their lives, whether that is traffic violence that we as a culture have decided somehow along the line was the price of civilization. We're seeing that more and more during COVID-19 when people like Dr. Phil are getting on the news and saying we don't shut down society because we lose like 1.3 million people every year to car deaths. And I'm like, well, shouldn't we be changing our lifestyles because of that? I'm not saying shut it down. All the way up to why I feel compelled to watch a sorority girl get sawed in half of the chainsaw in a simulated schlocky, incredible 
incredibly fake way. I'm interested in what we do with violent impulses in our places in, in our society and where they go. So those are two how those two things are kind of connected in my mind. My next book that I'm knock on wood going to finish this year, I certainly have a lot of time to write these days, which is good, is maybe a little bit more connected. It is about, it's called on my browser uh, or my word processor right now, Untitled New Mexico Cult Project doc. <laughs> it is about a group of people that try to start a utopian society that goes very wrong. And I'm very interested in that model, especially during this COVID-19 time when we are questioning everything about our way of life and how we can make it more sustainable. And I'm curious about the dark side of that because I'm curious about the dark side of everything. It's my my secret side. <laughs> so yeah. What sage advice do you have for others wanting to make a difference in their communities? Sage advice. Well, that's a tall order uh, on the spot. I would say don't let your imagination be constrained by the constrained imaginations of others. That's, that's what I would say. When it comes to something as big as reversing car culture, which billions and billions of dollars have been poured into that cause over your and my lifetimes and our grandparents' lifetimes. And our narratives have been shaped on every single level of culture. We need to think so big and thinking so big, I mean also thinking so comprehensively about what we as individuals can do, what our societies can do, what our neighbors will accept. I think if we can learn everything, anything from this incredibly dark and weird and boring and dramatic time in our lives right now. It's that everything can change. It can. And some of the things that can change it are so small as to be invisible. And imagination, I hope, is something that can be a legacy of this period, that we can imagine a different way to live because it's here and we can make it something very, very good if we choose to. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's very profound in, in so many ways. And it, it makes me think a little bit too about uh, behavior, human behavior, and how difficult and challenging that is to, to, to change both individually as a person, you wishing to, to live in a certain way, but then also society, you know, from a societal perspective and looking at our networks of friends and any guidance that you would have, you mentioned your, your network of friends and your millennial group. I mean, I think the only way to change behavior, this is advice I've gotten from other people. It's not original. Neither was the thing I said before. To be clear, the thing you said was profound. I cannot take credit. But I, I'm thinking of a guy named Mike Addy, who I know here in St. Louis. He is an organizer. And the thing that I think he taught me most was that you can only meet people, change people based on what they already care about, not what you think they should care about. Um, not what you, no matter how right you are or how smart you are, you have to get people kind of by the guts and the heart. Um, so when it comes to something like changing the way people move through towns, you have to figure out what matters to them, not what matters to you. Um, you know, a, sil a silly example is, you know, my, my stepmother is a lovely, lovely person who like a lot of step parents does not always understand what I do. You know, um, I don't always understand what she does. We're both people. And the, the first thing that I've ever written about that she has like looked at and said like, wow, I get it. It was a picture of a woman about her age standing next to a Hummer and the Hummer dwarfed her. <laughs> and she was like, wow, now I understand on a visceral physical level why no one needs a car that big. 
it was just something that simple. Um, but I think that we have to ask ourselves when we're talking to someone, what matters to them? You know, are, do they have a kid at home who has a disability who might not be able to access their world um, from behind the wheel of a car? And they've never thought about that because it's a scary thing to think about it. Um, are they struggling to get access to food? And it would be really nice if they could walk to a community garden at the end of the street safely. Um, figure out what people care about and connect with that rather than focusing on being right because everyone knows they're right. We're all, we all think we're right. But what we need to think about is what other people need and what they love. It sounds like uh, when you reference the guts and the heart, you know, really trying to to resonate with somebody, there's a fair amount of storytelling there. Yeah, absolutely. So as a storyteller, how do we massage this message so that it can resonate with a broader audience and hopefully be able to get out there? I mean, I, I think it just comes back to putting people at the forefront of everything that we do. You know, this isn't about, I, I'm a big geek, you know, like I like talking about signalization and bump outs and I'm interested in the mathy side of things for sure. But I'm just as interested in things like, you know, my colleagues at Streets Blog LA published a great piece about street vendors during COVID-19, I forget what they're called, the Olote vendors, and how those individual people are surviving through this crisis, um, which by the way, also has a lot to do with how our streets can be a platform for local economy if we make them more walkable and if we make it possible for people to walk up to one another and have a very simple human connection over an ear of corn, you know, um, there's, it matters how we cast characters. We need to be able to take the tools of, you know, my career as a fiction writer, I use them all the time in my work as a journalist because there are heroes and there are villains and there are details that can anchor human in words in a way that makes them feel like they're in the room with you and that you care about them and that you want good things to happen to them. We have to turn the pedestrian and the cyclist into that person. We have to use every descriptive tool available to us as well as every statistical tool. And that's something that I am always trying really hard to make more space for it. And I don't always get it right. And my editor doesn't always want me to get too flowery with things for sure. <laughs> and it's a balance because you do need to have data and facts and credibility to ground you. But the human element and the storytelling element of it controls who's going to even look at it. You know, rather, never mind who's going to find it credible, but who's actually going to click on it, who's going to open the newspaper, who's going to listen in. You have to be presenting something that's emotional, compelling, and urgent. And that's always my goal. And I think we just did that. What's the best way for, for folks to find you? I'm so easy to find. Um, if you go to usa.streetsblog.org, you can read my work there any day. My email is the very predictable Kia at streetsblog.org, K-E-A, like the Swedish furniture company, not the Korean car. I'm on Twitter at streetsblog Kia. That's my handle. So yeah, find me anywhere. I love to get tips. I love to talk to people. I love to publish op-eds. I love to connect and hear stories from all over America. That's what makes my job so cool. Thank you so much. Hey, keep up the great work. It's my pleasure, John. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Kia Wilson, senior editor with Streets Blog. I truly cannot recommend Streets Blog enough for all things active mobility with coverage across the continent and beyond. 
And if you're interested in learning more about Kia's novel, I'll have that link in the show notes for you as well. Future episodes in the queue include Holly Bachman-Bennett, Amanda Popkin, Lynn Richards, Jeff Wood, and Peter Norton, just to drop a few names. Well, that's all for now, folks. So until next time, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers. Cheers.